Hi, I'm Henry Wynn of Monkish Brewing, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest is Adam Pacey of Floodland Brewing, and he's here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. First, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at allaboutbeer. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Falling temps and festive seasons are fast approaching, which means now is a good time to develop holiday stouts and brown ales using hibiscus and cinnamon from First Tea. Looking for other new ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCode.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at MaltEurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. Okay, let's get into it. A bit about my guest today. Adam Pacey founded Floodland in 2017 in Seattle. Floodland is focused on brewing and bottling, mixed culture saison. Uh, prior to Floodland, he was a co-founder and brewer at Holy Mountain. All right. Well, welcome, Adam. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So uh figured just for a point of introduction, let's just kind of go with the direction of why saisons. And yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, I think Saison started for me basically at the same time that I started homebrewing, um, which was very shortly after I actually even started drinking. I sort of grew up in a family with some alcoholism. And when I was younger, I, I didn't drink. Like all my friends in high school were drinking. I was straight edge. Like I was a hardcore kid. Um, and I would go, you know, I'd go pick mushrooms with my friends. They were all cosmonauts. Um, and I just sort of abstained. And then in my mid twenties, I kind of got to the point where I thought I, I'm, I can probably handle this. And I started drinking a little bit. And I, so I've always had this background of coming to beer from kind of a different place than most of the, my peers. And I got into it at a, at an older age than most people start drinking. And so I sort of dove right into serious beers. Like I had friends who were into German beers and into Belgian beers. Um, and at the time, I, I started drinking a little bit when I was living in California at the time. I'm from Seattle, born and raised, and I lived down there for a couple of years. So I so I kind of never had that high school drinking shitty beer phase. Like I started drinking Anchor Steam, you know, like that was the first yeah. thing I got into. And like really quickly, I moved back to Seattle and really quickly I um, was excited about what was going on in Seattle with Belgian beers. Brower's had just opened um and which is a, a huge uh belgian beer bar here and 
Bottleworks and Stumbling Monk had already existed for a while and predated my interest in Belgian beers. But I fell down that rabbit hole really quickly. And right after I got into it, I started home brewing. So I, I was really excited about brewing Belgian styles from the get go. And I was also really into English styles and was drinking cask beer. There was a, a kind of a cask resurgence here. So Cezanne has been a thing for me from the beginning. And as a hobby brewer, I got I got into that really fast. I um, extract brewed with a couple of friends and it was disastrous, basically. And I, I thought, man, like this can't be how this really works. Yeah. So I spent a weekend like devouring some homebrewing books and bought myself an all grain kit and started brewing pretty obsessively. Like I was brewing every week in my sister's garage, bottle conditioning, everything. I didn't start out kegging so i bottle conditioned everything and i spent years and years doing that bottle conditioning everything and then eventually um when colin and i started holy mountain saison became one of the things that we incorporated into the blend of beers there so when i when i decided to leave holy mountain and start my own thing i, I had to reassess what i was going to do it felt like the situation where i had a blank slate like i'd already started one brewery that did a wide set of beers like we didn't have a, a really singular focus yeah, sure. which from a business standpoint is the absolute smart thing to do i think being hyper focused on one beer from a business standpoint is a little scary but i wanted to bring an element to the seattle scene that i thought we were lacking in the us which was more breweries that were inspired by the old continental breweries more of the you know, when you're into Orval and you think about what they do and how good that beer is, it's hard to not think, especially when you have a brewing background and you think about it as a brewer, it's hard not to think, man, if you could focus on one beer or even two or three or one subset of beers yeah. at a time, you'd be so much more in tune with that. And one of the things we did at Holy Mountain was that we brewed a lot of one-off beers. And I think we were able to pull it off at a really high level because Colin and I had been brewing like that on a hobby level um, for many years. And we were like really dialed. So we had this background where we we were used to brewing one-off beers, but on a professional scale, when you brew one-off beers, you know, the chances that they're all going to be like sublime, that they're all going to be really, really right is, is slim. But when you can focus on something, kind of meditate on it and do it over and over and over again, you get into a rhythm of it. So so my thought was whatever I wanted, whatever I was going to do, I wanted it to be more focused. And I'm really ADD. I have a hard time sticking with any topic for more than a couple of minutes, much less a couple of months. So for me, I wanted to impose a bunch of limitations on myself. Um, and so I, so I thought about the styles that I like drinking the most and essentially it was pretty clear that it was either going to be Saison or it was going to be cask ale. Um, and I brewed a lot of English inspired beers. You know, I think most American are kind of standard repertoire yeah. of American beers are mostly English inspired IPA, pale ale, porter, stout, all these things. These are all English beers, um, fundamentally. And I was kind of brewing English beers that I felt like were, like they'd taken a fork in the road from being English that and ended up in a different place than most of what people in the States were brewing. And, and some of those um, were hobby beers and some of those were beers we did at Holy Mountain, but I thought I could do something cool there, but we have Machine House in Seattle who are like an exceptional um, yeah. English style cask brewery. 
and Bill, the brewer there is a, a great dude and a great brewer and they make exceptional beers. And I, I felt like if I did another English ale brewery like that, that I might be stepping on his toes at the same time, like my wife and I were having our first kid and I was thinking about the way that I drink beer and the way that I interact with beer and how much I really enjoyed drinking bottled beer and how much I enjoyed drinking beer at home or outside or places where Cascale isn't really conducive to. So, um, so Saison seemed like the thing. And that was essentially the the process that I whittled it down to how, what we were going to do at Floodland. Um, and that was why we we ended up starting a brewery with uh, no glycol, no keg washer, no cold room, no tap room. None of the things that are like foundational to most modern American breweries. And some of that was because I wanted it to be really stripped back. And some of it was that I wanted to give myself limitations so that it would be harder for me six, 12 months down the line when I knew that I would start sort of chomping at the bit and being a little antsy about wanting to brew other beers. I, I was trying to make it harder on myself so I could go as long as possible yeah, yeah, yeah. just doing Saison and being really focused on that. No, I, I totally get that. I, I like the singularity of a brewery. You know, I, I think when, you know, it's like I, I use this analogy a lot. When I go to a, a restaurant, I, you know, I love eating different kind of Asian foods. Um, I hate it when I go to an Asian restaurant and it's kind of like Pan-Asian. Yeah. So it's kind of like, oh, I don't go to a sushi place expecting to eat, you know, like bibimbap or something like that. Yeah. I like the, you know, singular because it, it shows a certain identity, a certain uh, um, like immersiveness in a certain culture that surrounds that food. So Cezanne's being immersed in that culture and, you know, all the little aspects of it rather than just kind of going one-off. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Yeah, there's an aspect to that when you see it where, for me, I I worry that that comes from a place of pandering, right? That they're, you know, you, you go to an Italian spot and they've got burgers yeah. on the menu or whatever, yeah. right? Like, if you go into one of those spots and you see that, you think they don't want to make this. Like, yep. they're doing this yeah. so that someone doesn't throw a fit. Um, and I have kids, like I get it. Sometimes you want to be family friendly and you think that that's the way to do it. But that is sort of a, especially in, in the U S um, I feel like it's um, it's a, it's a, it tends to be a lowest common denominator thing, right? Like the kids in Italy don't eat burgers, right? Like kids in all these other countries, they grow up eating foods that they feed their children also. Right. Yeah. So it's such a weird American conceit that you need to have these like entry level things or that you need to pander to people with more simplistic palates and tastes. Um, and, and so that, that always is kind of a turnoff. Cause you're like, man, if you're going to do this, like own it, do it right. Do it your way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, even within singularity, you do have like that luxury of trying to hit different notes for different people you know like i know for like for like mixed fermentation beers you could always you know ponder the fruitiness to try to get people's attention and and whether you want to you know sometimes like be true to self lower abv higher abv more fruit less fruit you know delicate touch or not and so there is expressiveness even within singularity and i think um uh, people always don't explore that. And they just kind of do like, this is our Saison, this is our, you know, whatever is our stout and 
don't really understand the culture and nuances of it. I always like making fun of other people that make saisons and they're too high in alcohol. You know, they were like, oh, it's low alcohol. There's 6%. I'm like, no, that's very high. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, and when you talk about alcohol content, yeah. the industry is absolutely rife with with false labeling, right? Like um, we've gotten, we got some flack from someone once on uh, Instagram. Of, of course, it kind of like goes par for the course, but some guy um, gave us shit for having two decimal points on our labels. And uh, I, I was shocked because the first time I'd seen two decimal points on a label was um, Ale Apothecary bottle. Yeah. And when I saw it, I thought that's got to be lab tested. Like yeah. you wouldn't, yeah. you don't do your math to two yeah. decimal places. And so I thought, man, this is classic Paul Arney. This is such an elegant way to tell someone something without saying it. You're saying, hey, this this is a real ABV by putting two decimal points, right? So uh, I think that, you know, what you're saying before about that is, about the diversity of the beers within a, even a singular focus. Yeah, we're not Orval, right? Like we didn't go that far down the road. We sort of went a ways down the road and then stopped and camped in a place where we can definitely do that. We make, we make obviously we make fruit roof ferments. We make um, unblended beers. We make blended beers. We even make some dark beers. We made a strange rye, beer to guard slash almost English stock ale once um, that I think people um, were super confused about. So, so sometimes we do these things that I, I think are within the like lexicon of what we do that I think are within this idiom, which to me, like a lot of what floodland is about, which no one ever really, I think has ever caught or has caught and expressed it is that we try to dwell in oftentimes in the weird intersections of English beers and Belgian beers. Yeah. There's a cool conversation historically between those two um, countries and their beers. And you look back at like the history of Porter, especially for anyone who's into like um, Ron Pattinson, shut up about Barclay Perkins, obviously like one of the sort of greatest modern beer blogs. If you like read about, read his books or read his blog posts about, you know, the history of Porter and you start understanding some of those beers historically, the history of Porter is a mixed culture barrel aged beer. Yeah, yeah, for modern, sure. Yeah, modern Porter is not Porter really. Um, and those beers, you look at them and like the production techniques are so similar to Flemish Red, so similar to Lambic. Um, and there's there's crazy crossover there, which to me is really exciting and really cool. And so we like to think about that well you know we call the beer saison and i think they are saison um but there's definitely a lot of english tradition that informs how to do that which for us is the thing that we do like on the on the back end of it we don't really talk about it publicly but it happens um like so aaron who's the other brewer at floodland um he and I both have, have a shared history of writing a lot. He is an English major and has, has written a lot. And when I was younger, I was sort of figured that I would go into writing as a profession. And so sometimes we talk about the commonalities between brewing and writing. And one of them is simply that if you're going to write fiction, you develop background on the people and the places that you're writing about that don't come out in the actual writing. Like you need to understand people's, you want to flesh these characters out. 
You want to understand where they came from, what their motivations yeah. are. And so we do the same thing for our own edification with the beer, right? Like we talk about not necessarily backstories, but there's reasoning behind the beers that doesn't get exposed, that never comes out, that isn't in the beer, that isn't in the descriptions, that isn't in the emails. And that, and that like English connection is one of those types of things. A lot of times we think about with the beers, which for us just makes it more fun, right? It gives us more, you know, we like to pull things apart and we like the metaphysical aspect of it. We like the beer as more than beer. Um, so a lot of times we fall down that rabbit hole. And... Yeah. You ever have a problem with the term Saison for you? Like, did, was that a big like decision for you? Or, and do you wrestle? Do you wish you didn't call it Saison? It was a big decision. I'm very glad that we call it Saison. I think that, you know, if you think about language as a way of communicating with other people and helping other people understand what you're about or what you're trying yeah. to say, then the last thing that I want to do is be the, the brewer that needs to find a new term for brewer, as if brewer isn't a good enough term. Like people talk about this, people talk about this with the um, the grape referments, where they want to use the term yeah. beer wine hybrid. Um, and as someone who is interested in the intricacies of language and the way words get put together, I find it mostly kind of upsetting. I, I wouldn't call a beer with honey in it a beer mead hybrid. I wouldn't call a beer with apples in it a beer cider hybrid. Yeah. yeah. And I think that the the term hybrid, to me, it, it it can often, it almost comes across as a pejorative a little bit. Um, I think that, you know, there's this trend in the last decade with Saison producers, especially to really um, look towards wine production methods and cop that style. Yeah. And... I get it because I make wine also and I make cider and I've been making cider for as long as I've been making beer. I really enjoy those things. Uh, and I, I really enjoy wine, but I think that you have to learn that with wine and cider, these are pure agricultural products. They are things that you can take grapes off of a vine, put them in a bucket, step on them, crush them, and they will just ferment and they will become, I mean, eventually they'll become vinegar, but you can make wine with essentially no additions, no heat. You can do it with your hands, right? Um, beer is not a pure agricultural ingredient. It's this thing where we've, by breeding and selective farming, have over centuries and centuries developed barley to the point where it works the way we want it to for yeah. beer. Beer started off not even being brewed with hops, right? You people were using yarrow and mugwort and all these other herbs. Hops have obviously probably been bred pretty dramatically from their wild origins. So we've like as as people and you know farmers, we've really cultivated these things, and then we take them, we you know we we har machine harvest them, we machine process them, we crush the barley, we cook it, yeah, we strain yeah. it we boil it we chill it these are all really interventional things um and then we're smashing all these agricultural ingredients together if you take wine and you put hops in it you're basically talking about vermouth right like yeah. it's a whole different thing so um and and there's a name for that right like if you put botanicals in wine it's not a 
it's not a beer wine hybrid, right? Yeah. That's a vermouth. It's a totally different thing. So, so beer to me is this very, it, it carries with it a lot of human intent. It carries with it this idea that you're going to smash all these things together to make something that didn't exist before that, which I, I think rings more true to cooking than to winemaking. And I think that when you start to think about beer as being similar to winemaking and you want to start using winemaking terms, which admittedly we do, we make beer with grapes in them, right? We walk those lines. But I think that when you start to get into buzzwords of wine and you want to push beer in that direction, what you start to lose is that beer has its own special characteristics beer historically is such a way for people to come together it's such a builder of communities you talk to winemakers and those guys when they're making the wine they're drinking beer right there's such a there's such a sort of egalitarian aspect to beer historically that's really cool and that's really different from wine and I, i i just think that we should hold on to that and remember that that beer is a product that embraces all these other disparate ingredients like fruit yeah. and wine fruit fruit and beer is not an adjunct right yarrow and herbs and flowers in beer these are not adjuncts these are things that are inherent to beer and the history of beer and that is really cool and makes beer really special and makes beer really different like wine, wine has things that beer doesn't that are really cool on their own but beer does also and i think that that doesn't get enough play like, I think we don't talk enough about the fact that beer inherently is such a magical thing because it can take all of those other agricultural ingredients and make them part of beer, right? Like a beer with peaches in it, it's still beer. And there's a historical precedent to that. There's a historical precedent to beer um, using fruit to referment as a method of preservation, right? This is something that I talked about a lot to people because I think so many people don't live in or aren't in touch with agricultural rhythms. And so when you, when you start to think back to what things were like hundred, 200 years ago, when people were homesteaders or when people were living, a lot more people were living on farms and you didn't have mass industrial refrigeration and trucking, and you didn't have, you know, whatever vegetable or fruit you wanted 12 months out of the year you had to think about preserving the harvest that you had at that time. Like when peaches come in, you've got this short window to, to make use of it. And if you want to eat peaches more than, you know, eight weeks out of the year, you need to do something with them besides just eating them fresh. So you're talking about fermenting them, you're talking about canning them, whatever. And so beer is a form of beer refermented with fruit as a form of, um, fruit preservation is historically like really compelling and and we don't we're not you know this is not like ren fair throwback anachronistic stuff we don't cook with a open fire no no problem for people who do but there's there's elements of these things with beer production historically that aren't just interesting from an anachronistic standpoint that are interesting because they've been lost because maybe they're not hyper efficient but they're actually still really cool things that we can do, which is why, you know, a ton of the fruit referments we do are second use or they're like seconds, they're calls from the farmers. Right. Mm-hmm. So we make a beer every year or most every year called Collins family 
from Collins Family Orchards, where essentially they grow, I don't know how many it is, but probably 20 plus varietals of plums and pluots. And so over the course of the year, we take the market returns, like things that got sent to the farmer's market and then sat out in the sun and then came back, which aren't cosmetically perfect anymore. And we take culls, like things that might have a little bit of bird, been pecked out by a bird. Um, we take all that fruit that's not cosmetically perfect and we take we just keep taking it from them every week, week after week after week, and we take it and we use all of it. Um, so so to me, the, those things, as far as like the what we do and with with it being Cezanne, all that stuff is really intentional, right? Like I think that Cezanne has such a cool history. Um, and obviously I've wandered, you know, dramatically from the, the original question, which was, you know, how do I feel about calling calling it Cezanne? I think when you say Saison, people who are into beer know what that means. And it doesn't come with connotations like a farm farmhouse ale comes with connotations, right? If you say we make farmhouse ales, there's people who are into beer who are going to understand that you don't literally mean a farm beer. You mean a beer style that was developed, right? But you're going to have gatekeepers, right? There was there was the you know there was sort of a manifesto written by a Midwestern yep. brewery a couple of years ago, um, basically saying if you're not a rural brewery, you can't call your beers farmhouse. I don't want to necessarily really gatekeep people making saison. If someone makes something and they call it saison, and I don't think it's saison, then I'll roll my eyes at it. But um, I think when you call it saison rather than calling it farmhouse beers, you're out step you step outside of that argument a little bit which for me is comfortable um and saison doesn't have much meaning it's also a style that while while it's a belgian style it was a style that essentially died out and was resuscitated in huge part due to americans right like american breweries are well, most most beer styles these days it was because of american We've absolutely always... so i think i think that it's okay as an american brewer to to appropriate that term um you know, there, there's all these people want to do this like Kolsch style ale, Saison style ale. Um, and I find it to be really hand ringy and just not necessary. Like if you're going to brew it and you're going to brew a Kolsch, just call it a Kolsch. Um, if someone from there is pissed about it, then they're just going to be pissed about it. But if you want to be respectful of the fact that they're pissed about it, then don't brew it. Don't call it, a you know, like don't, I don't, we don't make no one makes champagne style wine, right? Like they'd get sued. So I think you need to draw the line. Like either you respect that those origins and you think that can only be brewed in that place or, or you don't. Um, I wouldn't brew something and call it an X style ale. If I was going to do that, if I felt the need to do that, I just wouldn't brew it. Yeah. You know, I, you bring up a lot of things and it's kind of wasn't my, the direction of the question, but, um, I'm not sure how much I want to, you know, expand on that. But I guess one of the things I was asking about is like for me, I struggle with saison that term often. Yeah. I don't know what to call it. I, I think part of the problem is like what you're like hitting on is that we tend to take away or like at some point maybe we're just bored of the meta narrative that exists in the history. Like when I see saison it evokes so much of a history a, you know a time and place i start thinking about you know my love and experience and my journey with it and then i open and i drink it and it it should continue that journey right and um 
I love the ambiguity that exists because of the rich history of it. And then, you know, I take that beer, I go to Europe and I pour it. You know, it's rare for us to ever take a Saison with us to Europe. And once in a while, I'll do it. And, you know, European Saison brewers are like, this is not a Saison. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm so proud of this beer. You know, a little lower acidity. It just pops. Everything is just beautiful. Oakage. Yeah. They're like, it's not a Saison. And it just, it breaks my heart because they're for me closer to the story than, you know, than I am. Um, but it's the same thing with every other style of beers that we, maybe that's a, the issue with the, using the term hybrid is that we don't appreciate the story of things and the rich meta narrative that exists. So we just um, come up with a known term that has no real meaning anymore. Because that's maybe that's where we're at. Things don't really mean enough. But you know, for me, when I do see saison, it means a lot to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that it's understandable that people can drink those beers, like the saison that you style that you and I make, yeah. and think this isn't a real saison. And part of that is just with beer, we have this history where these beers have been made for hundreds of years. So they've evolved dramatically, right? Like the Saison that you and I probably first drank were these, like, I like to call them second wave Saisons, the clean industrial yeah. Saison era, the DuPont, you know, Thierrier, Alberon, Blaugies, these, these breweries, right. And there's, there's so many others. Um, but those beers and our beers don't have an enormous amount in common those beers were a an evolution of the old school farm beers. And I think that us, I, I always like I, I like to refer to brewers of our style and era as third yeah. wave Saison brewers. Like we yeah. all hearkened back to that first wave, the, the original Saisons and the stories about that of of mixed culture beers of beers brewed seasonally for farm workers with these yeah. like you, you read about all the spell and buckwheat grown in that area and you can't help but think oh my god i want to brew one with spelt like this sounds incredible yeah, yeah. i want to i want to brew one in the winter and wait and then yep. you know like there's a there's a romantic element to those stories that is obviously hooked in an enormous number of us who have then devoted not insignificant portions of our lives to chasing that, which is one of the most compelling things about Cezanne is the way that it can get under your skin and that you can fall in love with it. To me, that's really exciting. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, you have this sense with beer where people who get interested in beer as more than just a beverage, people who get interested in beer and really fall in love with beer, you have a journey, right? Where you don't start off knowing all these things. You don't start off knowing how to properly open a bottle conditioned beer that's heavily carbonated, yeah, right? Yeah. The, this is something that someone has to teach you or that you have to learn through trial and error. And you you don't under, like people aren't born knowing that there's multiple different types of saisons, right? That, that, that Thierry Extra and Durant Double X are, just as much a saison as monkish and floodland saisons are even though these beers are like stylistically and from a fermentation standpoint made in really significantly different ways um those are that's advanced level stuff um it, and it's stuff that you have to get pretty deep 
So, so it's no surprise that when you talk to someone who's maybe not as far down the rabbit hole as we are, that they might be, be shocked at what we, you know, and you're like, no, 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 this, this is real Saison. Like yeah. this is as real as Saison gets arguably more authentic than what's being made by most of those um, industrial breweries in Belgium. But that's like those people just, they don't have the context for it that you and I do. Yeah. It's not to be like pretentious or, you know, gatekeeping or anything, but it's a simple thing that there's an essence that we don't want to lose to brewing, opening the bottle, pouring it out, drinking it, enjoying it. And that's it, you know, um, and just know that you had a special moment with yourself really. And, you know, and drinking this beer and, you know, Mark, whatever it is, you just, you know, it is a very beautiful beverage. All beer is beautiful. We just happen to fall in, Saison and that beauty. I'm sure people find beauty in different, you know, styles of beer too. Um, yeah. So um yeah, there's this sense with beer where you know the the amount that you enjoy drinking a bottle of beer is obviously really contextual. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, you're you finally get a day off of work and it's sunny and you're sitting outside and you're like, Oh man, a beer sounds so good. And you crack a bottle. That bottle is going to taste really good. It's going to taste extra good. For me, the majority of those experiences that I've had happen to come with Saison. Like I think Saison is conducive to that. It's like, there's something about it. There's something about a 750 mil bottle. There's something about, I think in particular, there's something about green bottles, which is one of the reasons why we still use green bottles. I think there's a, there's something to it and it's hard to pin down, but I really enjoy it. And it adds to the experience. I think I've opened 375s and 500 mil bottles of, of Cezanne. And I just, I feel like something's missing. Yeah. So like when when we K condition, the six still tastes better than the halves. You know, 750s for sure. I remember Ron Jeffrey says he went through all his experimentation and he's found that the 750 is the beauty spot for him. And I've, I, that's why we still do 750s. We yep. still believe in it and we're convinced by it. They say in Champagne that the Magnum is the best. The Magnum, the 1500 uh, mil is the best size format for Champagne that even when you go into higher um, if you go into th- three liter, six liter, nine liter bottles, it's not as good as a Magnum. And, and we've definitely seen that with bottles too, where maybe the Magnum is the ultimate format, but it's it's so much more convenient to drink out of 750. And I think you don't lose as much. We've pulled the same beer into 375s and 750s and, and blind side by side of them. And, and I can tell the difference. Um, I can't tell the difference with a mixed culture beer, like, um, conditioned and stored horizontally versus vertically can't tell the difference um but but 375 versus 750 i've I've blind picked them out side by side multiple times the condition just tastes different um and 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 there's there's scientific reasons for that obviously um and that it's not just um you know this isn't just something that is um emotional there's 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 reasons for it but I do think that there are also, and there's an emotional reaction to just the, the that right size, the way that a a saison sounds when you open it, you know, like the way that it the way that a lively beer with good carbonation sort of like comes out in the glass. That's that to me is fun, um, and there's an element about it. It's like if if you like, you know, vinyl records over 
CDs, you know, you understand that like there's this extra element where you can take something and, and in the presentation of it, um, elevate it beyond just the, what's in the bottle. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's a lot more we can, uh, we'll definitely get into. So, uh, but at this point, we're going to take a short break uh, for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Adam Pacey of Floodland. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit malteuropemaltingco.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at malteurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea has ginger for the gingerbread stout. Or try a porter or brown ale with ginger, vanilla, and cinnamon. Looking for other seasonal ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. All right, welcome back. So, Adam, um, you know, a number of my kind of connections with people tends to be very relational, tends to be very conversation-driven, and I always remember what people tell me and it kind of I gather it and everyone is a certain ex like uh um I guess embodies a few comments that they've made to me over the years and so kind of want to just come uh reflect on some of the little comments that you've made uh as a segue into other issues that I'm sure you'll naturally expound on so one of it was um I think I I had texted you about a beer I had and we kind of talked about beers and how important it is and how great it was. And then you mentioned that your beers, the way you saw them um, was that it was meant for enjoyment as you're preparing a meal. And I, I really love that expression because normally people talk about how, you know, you, it's a aperitif. It tends to be more of a, you know, at the end of the meal, kind of like it's going to wrap up everything. And then you see it as something more, um, I don't know, communal, more like day-to-day, easy going. And, and, you know, that's how you approach your beers. I think it was um, Dan Suarez once, you know, said something like he looked at his beers, his lagers as his daily sustenance. And I, I've always loved keeping beers very simple as part of your life yeah the kitchen yeah the kitchen is sort of the center of our home my wife and i's home and i and i think that when i tend to hang out with friends 
and and a lot of my friends i gravitate towards them around food 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 and music um are huge linchpins for me in my life and so my daily rhythm is i come in i get to the brewery about 6 30 get things going and uh i try to get out of here at about five and my kids are young my kids are now three and seven and so and my wife's a nurse she works long hours and so when we get home you know and with young kids you know we don't get a ton of time um to spend just the two of us and so that first hour or so when i get home i just immediately jump into prepping dinner so so it's a really nice time it's probably my favorite part of the day like i'm i get home start working on dinner I get to chat with my wife and catch up on how things are going. And so it's a really nice time for me to pull a bottle out of the fridge, you know, and then you, you pull a bottle out of the fridge, you give the kids some hugs, you sort of start pulling stuff out of the fridge. You figure out what you're doing. Like, what are we putting together? What do I need? What's going first? Um, then, you know, 15, 20 minutes has passed and then the bottle is starting to warm up a little bit. You crack the bottle, you pour a couple glasses, you put the cap back on, and you sort of go, you start getting into your evening. Um, and usually what happens is, you know, we'll drink a glass while we're prepping dinner. And then you go to sit down and you finish off the bottle. Um, and and these beers that we make like this, it's a really nice thing to be able to drink that way. It opens up really nicely over the course of the evening. Yeah. A couple of hours of being open, the beer usually tastes dramatically better is what I would say. And dry beers tend to go super well with food and so you're drinking this you know five six percent beer on a weeknight you're not going to feel sluggish the next day right it really hits this like uh soothing relaxing spot um, and it can be really comforting and it doesn't make you feel tired like a lot of times on a weeknight i don't want to open a bottle of wine like it's too much i got to get up at 5 30 the next morning right and i have kids so there's times where i want to come home and, and crush a bottle of wine but it's frequently not i'm not as productive or i'll get a little tired and sluggish but if i drink a bottle of saison i feel great like i feel if anything i feel invigorated so for me just functionally that's one of the ways that we drink the beers and i think that when floodland started i was like I'd said earlier, I, I was an, essentially a new dad. Like my my first daughter, Amelia, was born um, the summer that I was trying to get the lease locked down for this property. And so at that time, I was like doing homebrew cool ship batches, trying to come up with new cultures on our porch and working on ideas for all the beers. And so being a new dad really informed a lot about how we do things at the brewery. Not just the fact that we make things mostly in bottles, but also how we did pickups. Like the fact that I, I didn't want to have bottle sale lines. I was thinking about the way that my life had changed being a father and the way that I saw the lives of some of my friends who chose to be parents changing. And I really took that into account, or I tried to take that into account with the business. So we we jokingly in a non-gendered way, always referred to them as dad beers for that reason. Cause you're like, dude, you can, you buy them on, on the internet. You can come yeah. pick them up over the next couple of months. They're going to sell her just fine. Like I've had so many times where I got home and I wanted a beer and I cracked open a Pilsner and then like 
someone had a poopy diaper or someone needed a snack. And then like 40 minutes later, I come back to the Pilsner and it's warm and it's flat and it tastes like shit and I dump it out and it feels like a waste. But if you're drinking a Saison like that over the course of the night, you just put the cap back on top of the ball and you don't get let fruit flies get in or anything. That ball is going to taste great in 45 minutes. If it warms up, probably better. If it opens up, gets a little oxygen, probably better. So it was really like literally conducive to that sort of lifestyle that I have as a, as a parent of young kids. It was a really interesting revelation for me that the style that I loved for completely different reasons also happened to slot in when I had this really massive life change, lifestyle change of becoming a parent. Um, and so I think, I think that's one of the reasons why that prepping a meal for some reason is the thing that I latch onto as being representative of that, of the way that it sort of fits into our lifestyle, which is very focused on, you know, cooking and eating food. Like food is just such a big part of my life. I'm constantly cooking. I'm constantly thinking about food. I'm constantly planning for like, when can we see friends and have a meal together? Um, it's, it's such a huge part of our life. Um, and, and the, and beer pairs with it so nicely. Like we all, you know, if we get together with a bunch of friends, we'll drink a lot of wine, but we always start, usually we start with a couple of saisons. Yeah, do you think though, like when you look at your beers though, with your experience there, do you think that you have your own experience with the beer? Do you um, encourage others to have a different experience like that to slot it in their life? Because I think that people treat your beers, our beers, or most beers in general that have any kind of allure to them is that um, it's a special occasion. It's a special moment of a meeting time with people like oh let's you know whether it's like i'm going to geek out on food so i'm going to pair the you know the geekiness uh beverage with the food rather than the like that non like um um i don't know like high expectation like moments should they be in the no expectation moments you know because i i struggle with food too like you go to restaurants you know we and then you just see people not really simply enjoying their meals. Everyone's always snapping their, you know, the photo, the pose of it. I'm like, if, especially go to sushi restaurant, if a sushi chef puts it in front of you, you should really just capture the aroma and whatever, not snap a photo. You're going to lose out in a little moment. You know, there's different aspects that people do with, with food and sadly with beer now. So, and then going back to like the essence of Cezanne, are we, you know, disjointing, you know, bifurcating, creating new, you know, weird experience with saisons, your saisons, you know, any saisons? When I was young, I was really into George Carlin. Uh, I still am really into George Carlin. And he had a bit in one of his shows in the mid 90s about people who constantly take photographs of stuff. Yeah. And I was pretty, I was, must, I was a teenager and I was pretty impressionable and it really it really stuck with me, this idea that, you know, you could you could be in the moment and experience yeah. it and then have the memory of it and have that be enough, that you don't need to document everything. Um, I, I think that there's so much about that mentality that's really big in beer, where it's more about you know, the Instagram culture of sharing what happened or using it as a way of creating a image of yourself rather than actually experiencing it which for most of us who are probably of your my age 
it can be really frustrating to see that when it happens to the beer, people who are more focused on the sort of social clout that might come from drinking rare beers than about sharing them with friends and enjoying them. Um, yeah. And I take pictures of stuff mostly because I can't remember what I drank or what something was like, what year was this? So I'll pull my phone out. I'll take a really quick picture. I put it back in my pocket, but, and I'm not trying to shame people who take photographs, right? There, there's an element of presentation to that. That's really beautiful, but definitely you have to, when you create something, you kind of have to let it go and let other people have their own experiences. There's a, there's an old Carly Simon quote about that, where she said, essentially was asked, you know, what she thinks about how people interpret her songs. And she said something to the effect of once that song is out in the world, it's not mine anymore. It's, it belongs to everybody who hears it and has their own experience with it. Yeah. I'm a control freak. So that is a really hard thing for me to let go of. I want things to be a really particular way, right? I want things to be the the best way or the way that I envisioned them. And when they aren't that way, I, it takes me a little while to sort of deal with that. So, so I think, I think about that idea and that Carly Simon quote a lot. Um, and I, tr I try to, you know, relax and let people just they're going to do what they're going to do with it. I mean, I would say that the thing that frustrates me the most is when people sit on the bottles and just collect them essentially. And the beer is like going bad in someone's basement. And we talk about that a lot. You know, I talk to the customers a lot um, in via email about when they should drink the beers and when I think they're going to be their best. And then beyond that, you can't really control people, right? Like you, you're not going to be punitive about it. All you can do is give people the information and then let them do what they will with it. So we we try to, based on our experiences with the beer, constantly give people cellaring guidelines, when to drink it, when it'll be best. Um, I, we've caught a lot of flack for it, actually, because I think there's a lot of other Saison producers who have different opinions on that, who think that the beers as a whole, as a stylistic whole, seller yeah. for really extended periods of time. Personally, I disagree with that. Um, I, I remember like one of my favorite brewers is Shane Johns from E9 Brewing in Tacoma. Yeah. He is exceptionally talented and really paved the way for the types of beers that I make in Washington. He was the first person here doing mixed culture saison. He's still doing it at an exceptionally high level. And he and I used to talk about this with Lambic where it was, I was like blown away that he, cause he's the only person I ever talked to who would say, oh, no, 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 that Fafoon is like four years old. I don't want to drink that. That's bullshit. Like, I don't want a four-year-old fruited Lambic. We would drink four-year-old Lambic. We'd drink 10-year-old Lambic, but we were, I, not, neither of us were really excited about drinking. Like, if you got fruited Lambic, you should drink it immediately. And he had come to that conclusion on his own through years and years of drinking it and cellaring it. And I had come to that conclusion separately. And when we had a conversation about it, I was just like, thank God someone else out there agrees because I just don't think those beers do well. And, and Lambic is built to age in general, much better than Saison is. It has, yeah. it's much more phenolic. It's higher ABV. It's much higher residual sugar, right? It's got these extended boil times. It's more oxidative. So it has all these things built into it that make it age better, but which also make it much more intense to drink. Like Saison in the sort of like style that we make it is 
um, really should be really easy drinking and pretty crushable for the most part, right? These are like generalizations, but it should be a really drinkable style. And so because of that, the thing that you lose is you can oftentimes lose longevity. So when we tell people to drink beers sooner, I think people interpret that as, oh, the floodland beers aren't as sellable. When really, I'm just trying to be like real about it. I think that some brewers, you get to this point where there's a there's a brewery who I won't name, who I have enormous amounts of respect for. And I was talking to a customer who had been like a local there. And he was shocked that we were telling people, oh, like drink these peach beers within like, you know, they've been bottle conditioned for six months. Drink them within the next six months, which I, and peach beers for me are on the real short end of shelf life, right? Um, and he was like, oh, 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 these, you know, th- this brewer that I talked to from this other Saison brewery says, no, 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 like these beers are great for like five, 10 years. And I was shocked. Uh, I was like, this guy's been doing it longer than me. You know, I'm surprised that he came to such yeah. a different conclusion. Yeah. And, I, and I went back at some point, I actually found an interview with him from early on when the brewery was, was, was younger, where he said exactly what I say now, which was drink them when they're younger. Uh, and you're talking about younger, you're like, this beer has been aged for two years yeah. before yeah. bottled bottle condition for six months and i'm saying drink it within the next year or two like that's not you know young is relative but you think about it from a business standpoint and realize you're selling um bottles that are sellable to a small group of people telling people that they need to drink their seller rather than buying the new release is runs contrary to what is good business and you're like, I've got a mortgage to pay, I've got kids to feed. Like, I don't want people to keep buying these bottles, right? Like this is my livelihood. So I think I think it's common that people either have a different opinion than me, but I also think that it's common that brewers get to the point where you're, you know, you're five, six years in to running your brewery and you see that people have this backlog of beers in their cellar. And you could easily talk yourself into saying, no, 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 these beers sell indefinitely. You should just keep buying them and keep stocking your cellar. And when I'm saying this, I'm not saying Floodland beers aged, you know, better or worse. I'm just saying my personal taste is drink them sooner. And besides that, we don't really tell people when and how to drink them. Like, you know, don't talk too much about that. I can see the temptation of saying that, you know, my beers can age until Jesus comes back. It is that yeah good. from a pride but, standpoint. You know, yeah, yeah, you're so mad. Like you want to, or just yeah. you want to create an extra unnecessary level of magic that doesn't yeah. you just can't ever know that you really did that. And so yeah. Um going off of like um a little tread that you were um you had there. Um, how do you feel though about people taking like the idea of letting go? But if people take it and they let it go and create something um that you don't like how do you like i don't know how much you fuss over it like the idea of your beers being like a different tier of a, a beverage it is you know god tier it is you know <laughs> oh, then it becomes adam is god tier you know what i mean or you had mentioned before like the deification of brewers and you know breweries and beers you want to yeah, share or just give a little uh, quip about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's this sense with people who drink beer and who follow breweries closely that brewers 
are maybe separate than them, that there's some differentiation that we're, that we're, we're different. They, and then oftentimes you get the sense of, you know, the, the Adam and Henry thing, the first name basis, right? Like you say, Corey, everyone knows who you're talking about, right? Yep. You say, Brad, everyone knows who you're talking about, right? There, there's these, you say, Avery, everyone knows who you're talking about, right? Cause these are brewers who are like iconic, highly successful brewers, people who've created really exceptional special beers. Um, I don't know. I, I feel odd talking about someone else by their on a first name basis when I don't know them, even outside of the beer world, right? Like my my cousin was Neil Young's tour manager for like 15 years, right? Yeah. And so we'll, you know, we'll be hanging out talking and he'll be like, Neil this, Neil that. And I'm like, I, I want to be like, ah, can I just call him Mr. Young or something? Like, I know this guy, you know, I don't know Neil Young, but I don't want to call him Neil. That feels really familiar. Yeah. From my cousin, you know, he spent over a decade working with this guy, like on tour all around the world. They literally circumnavigated the globe together, right? Like he's probably smoked five pounds of weed with Neil Young, right? He can call him Neil. I don't get to call him Neil. Like to me, that feels, it feels too familiar, but, but it, you know, and music is a really great allegory for uh, for beer and the way the brewers are treated. I come from this background of hardcore punk where you would go to shows and the people in the band, they they break down, they put their gear away, and then they're in the crowd for the next set. And the people who you know, are making the merch are there. The people who printed the shirts are there. The people who ran the label. And so all of my friends just did all of those things. And we were all involved in this. It was a very DIY community. So I came up just like doing graphic design for stuff because someone would be putting out a seven inch and they didn't have a cover and they'd be like, shit, we need a cover. And you'd be like, okay, cool. I'll help. And so booking shows or being in a band or putting out records was just normal stuff. Like everybody did that stuff. Um, and it, and it really helped demystify that, that as a creator of things, you're no different. Right. Um, and for me, so I came into beer with that background. And so I see that, that in, in the brewing community and in, you know, with beer, like fandom, um, I say with like giant air quotes, there's a lot of people who look up to brewers and have expectations of them as if they're not just people. Yeah. And I, I don't try to conduct myself in that way. I, I think that there's this expectation that you're going to be like the mayor of beer town, right? That every brewer is um, kind and respectful constantly and is going to walk around shaking everyone's hand with a big smile on their face. We're, we're not politicians, you know, and I don't think that we should be held to that kind of standard, right? Like brewers are just, we all make mistakes. We all do dumb shit. Um, we, we fuck up and, and hopefully if we fuck up, we apologize and move on just like anybody else. But, but I think the brewers oftentimes get held to very unfair standards because we get known as these personalities. And, and obviously with floodland, I, I kind of decided to try to like pull back and make a smaller brewery than the brewery had first brewery had started because I wanted to avoid that. Like when you look at our Instagram, you won't see pictures of people's faces, right? The algorithm hates us. Um, the last time we got interviewed for something, they asked for a, a photo shoot. And so we spent like a day getting animal masks and, <laughs> you know, all of us climbing on barrels and taking this sort of absurd art photo. 
because I didn't want a photo of me standing there, like holding a beer up to the light, like looking at it as if I was trying to divine the mysteries of the universe. I, I just think that while well, all that stuff there, I mean, there's pictures of me like that. Right. Um, but I just thought, man, can we question this a little bit? Can we question the way that we treat brewers and the way that the brewers put themselves up as if they're not normal people, right? Like, you know, everybody's, everybody goes through the same stuff. We all have similar struggles, you know? And I think that, um, like when I, sometimes when people ask me about starting a brewery, like people say, Hey, I'm going to start a brewery. Like, what do you, what do you say about that? I invariably say, please don't do it. Like I'm happy as a brewer, but, um, I feel like there was this gap where when I went from being a home brewer, talking to brewers to being a brewer, you like move through this veil where brewers talk about when brewers talk about being a brewer or talk about their breweries, they are representing their brand. And it's not good for your brand to say anything negative. And it's not good for your brand to show any sort of signs of weakness. And people get shocked by things that I say because I I have a little bit of a I, I kind of don't give a shit about that stuff. I'm like, if Floodland shuts down, I'll just go get a job somewhere else. You know, like I'll just go do something else. I don't expect it to last forever, so I'm a little bit um, more freewheeling. Like I feel like we we're so small that I can kind of say things that other people might want to say, but can't take the risk to say. So I always tell these people who come to me, I'm like, don't start a brewery because 90% of the breweries that I know are miserable. Most of them, like every single one that I've ever met who's done an expansion is unhappy about doing the expansion. Most of them struggle more and have harder harder jobs and they struggle more with it than I think anyone would would ever believe. And so, so then as a brewer, you're like, when you see people being mm, sort of um, throwing around, you know, untapped scores or throwing around like, easily insulting people's work it can be hard to see that you know like i'll slam someone's beer in private but i would never do it in public um and so so i think there's this interesting divide between the brewers and the public in that sense where you can't let your guard down and that can be a huge impediment to sort of demystifying brewers i don't know the solution to that i don't know there might not be a solution to it but i think but i think talking about it is interesting and i don't i don't think many people talk about that yeah, I think it's, you know, like I, I got a, I got my PhD and, and I remember in this context of a PhD program, you realize that everyone is normal. Everyone could have been somebody else that came up and now they're just doing the PhD because they could do it. So we're all there and um, we all have problems in life. We all have a lot of baggage and a lot of us try to work it out and a lot of us don't work it out. But if you're stuck in any kind of, um, situation where you get attention or a title or power or significance, then all that baggage gets very accentuated. And so if you don't work that stuff out beforehand, it's just going to like manifest itself in you as a, you know, a doctor, you as a brewer, you know, so I think a lot of brewers, it's just a reflection of who they were before. And I think some of us have try to mature through the process and become more self-aware. I always say that I would not start a brewery because I feel that I am not the best version of myself and that, that I could have been if I didn't have this. Brewery. 
So yeah, there's this the the sort of famous Sam Calgiani quote from from Sam, Sam from Dogfish Head about you know, and it's something about like you know, ninety nine percent of the people in the brewing industry are great or something, and, and, and I just found that statement and the how many times that statement has been repeated over the years to be really harmful. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely not true. Like if you think that 50% of the people you meet out there are assholes, then 50% of the people in the beer world are going to be assholes. And obviously like all that, you see all the rat magnet stuff that happened a couple of years ago. There's yeah. beer is b- beer is an industry, especially in the United States, but in lots of places is, is <laughs> full of racism. It's full of xenophobia. It's full of misogyny. It's such a so caustic towards women we're not none of us are all on our game none of us are our best selves and there's a lot of rotten apples i think that and the thing i was going to say about topher earlier from wildflower is he and i had a really cool conversation because i think there's a cultural divide there where he's was born in, in the u.s moved to europe to i believe also do his doctoral work or maybe master's work in like astrophysics or something he's like he's you know crazy smart dude um and ended up in australia and one of the things he and i were talking about was that he said in australia when people talk about going through a period of depression they have a term and they say they call it the black dog and they say it which which to me this was like a magical thing to hear and he said you know it really demystifies this it really um destigmatizes it you just say oh man you know adam i think he's got a bit of the black dog maybe we should take him out for a beer you know and so it just became this a cultural thing where it's a lot easier for them to talk about it and i think at least in the states we don't have that and i think people talking about mental health issues and normalizing them is is maybe been more of a thing with younger generations like i think kids these days are way better about that than than our generation was which is super good. I mean, obviously we've handed them sort of like a world on fire and they're getting forced to deal with it. But I, I think that, it, you know, in, in the brewing industry, we make alcohol and we all consume alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant. People have serious alcohol issues. And so I think that there's, I think that there's a lot of room for us as brewers to improve that culture, the culture of talking about people taking breaks from drinking, the talk, you know, the culture of people talking about, you know, ups and downs of mood that come with that we all have, right? These are all very human experiences. These are all experiences that we that we share and that are it's it's frowned 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 upon to talk about these things. But I think that there is an element of responsibility that comes with being a brewer to start those conversations and to normalize those conversations. Um, which which is another reason why we like lab test our ABVs to throw back to that. You know, that was a decision that I made because I felt like it was, I mean, some of it was a point of pride that I didn't want to lie about the alcohol content, but some of it was you're know, like, people are making decisions about yeah. how much alcohol they're consuming yeah. based on the ABV on the label. And so if I want to be, if I want to take making alcohol as a profession seriously and, and be held responsible for that, then I need to communicate that clearly to people. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of stuff there that doesn't get talked about by brewers very often, which, which to me bums me out. Like, I think that, I think that we could create a more healthy and more supportive beer culture if people were willing to let their guard down a little bit and expose themselves and, and, and say that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, and I could 
keep going, but there is one big beer topic I wanted to talk about. Uh, yesterday I was walking through the brewery and I found this um, car that you uh, gave me. It was, uh, what is a, <laughs> what is a yeah, We've had this conversation before and there was a, I think the first, uh, like we've traded beers before early on, especially even when you were at Holy Mountain and I remember uh, the first Floodland package I got, it said something that um, if this beer gushes, it's not your fault, it's my fault. And <laughs> I, I, I laughed so much. And I was like, "I yes, finally, someone just owns up to like to this thing about CO2 because I've always had my like quirks about it. And so this card uh, was a second ship. And it says, thanks for all the support and for the solidarity versus those who don't appreciate CO2 in Cezanne. So, <laughs> so my question to you is why is there CO2 in your Cezanne? And this is, so, we'll end with this topic. So, so obviously the card you held up, people listening to podcasts aren't going to see this. We, we um, had a, we made a shirt with a line drawing by Wade Ritchie, um, AKA Wade Katz, yeah. um, who's an incredible artist and former brewer who just opened a bar. Um, and uh, so I, I'd reached out to him. We have, we had some mutual friends and I'd had this, I have cats. I've had cats my whole life. Uh, I like cats. Um, I like dogs too. We have dogs. Um, but I, I'd had this, idea pop into my head like fully formed one day like I don't it was like a stroke of lightning and I just immediately saw I can't remember who the old story is but there's some old um early American story about the guy like shooting an arrow mm. someone else standing there with an apple on their head yeah and there's, I have this mental image of this and so in my head fully formed it sprang in and it was cats shooting a glass on the other cat's head and it, and I just in my head, it was, what is a floodland? Question mark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I, so I like, it was like, as if I'd woken from a dream, I just like wrote it down as fast as possible. So I didn't forget it. And I, and I emailed Wade and I was like, Hey man, like I have this idea for a cat shirt and like, I can't imagine it being done in anyone else's uh, yeah. illustrative style yeah. other than Wade. So he really, really kindly. Um, I, I sent him some pictures of my cats and sent him some beer as a bribe and, and obviously paid him for his art. Um, and he did, he did it absolute justice. He, he killed it. He turned my like ridiculous idea into this great piece of art. So we, we made shirts and we made postcards that say, what is a floodland? Uh, and, uh, so all that stuff, ties back to how you and I first met, which was essentially uh, a written correspondence talking about our love of Cezanne. Yeah. And I think that at that time, one of the things that had happened very early on at Holy Mountain was we making Cezanne in Seattle was felt like an uphill battle. Like it was not super easy to sell Cezanne and we really wanted to promote it. We really wanted to sort of like grow our ability to make more of the, that beer by turning other people onto it. And we felt like we are so passionate about this style and we think we're making good representations of it. And the first sort of um, non-local coverage that we had was Alex from Don't Drink Beer wrote a post, a big long form post um, about 
maybe like six or so, maybe four, four or five, six different beers of ours. And there's like a photo and there's beer all over his counter and there's like beer gushing out of the bottle. And um, the... <laughs> The people I worked with, um, I think mostly it was I caught a little flack because I was the one pushing our carbonation levels. I was the one doing the math. It was completely my fault if any of those bottles were um, overcarbonated. And the thing is that overcarbonated is hyper relative, right? Like so and you and I talked about this, I think, at the time and just the idea that you get so many people who are used to just opening a beer and never having any problem with there being excessive CO2 in it. And so people don't know, like we always joke about like open it like a pro, like open it as if you know that this is Saison and you should be opening it differently than opening a bottle of Porter or a bottle of Stout. Right. So you don't want to have to put a warning on the bottle, which was, I think even your joke at the time, like we had this back and forth about it where we're like, we have to do a collab and it's going to say like, warning yeah, this beer contains CO2, <laughs> which was just thicker. yeah yeah which was I, you know i think part making fun of ourselves and part making fun of other people who complain about you know beers gushing i've had beers that gushed that you couldn't have done anything about it you know if yeah. you drink a lot of those old logston beers i've had some that like hit the ceiling because they gushed so much i've had infected old Duronk beers that were you know like you open it cold and you lose half the bottle no matter what. Um, and they were all probably like magical, incredible beers, old Phantom beers that were infected. Um, there, there was a there was a history of that before I became a professional brewer. So I felt like I was just used to that. Like you go to open a Phantom bottle, not now, but back in the day, you go to open a Phantom bottle, like do not open it over a rug. Do not open it over a carpet. Do not open it not next to the sink and with like three glasses to pour it into because the chances that it's going to explode out of that bottle, no matter what you do are pretty high. So I like that, man, that feeling of opening a bottle and it gushes. It's like, oh, it makes you feel you're alive. You know, yeah, that I, to me is like invigorating. I, I always say like, I, I love saisons. I love the format. I love opening a bottle and I am the most present when I open a Saison bottle. Yeah, absolutely. You have the glass ready. You kind of yeah. like all right, back off a bit you, and then you, you know, you're focused, you open it, you look, it's rising and then you're, you're ready to go, you know, and it's, you're so present that it even enhances the drinking experience because you're all your senses, you have adrenaline going through your body yeah. all because <laughs> of the possible gushers. Yeah, what's gonna happen when I open this yeah. bottle? Which, yeah, you're taking I, your life in your own hands. But I always loved that, and I remember there was an era when we were making saisons early on. It's like there were breweries in the Pacific Northwest that were doing flat saisons, and I was like, whoa! And then it became such a trend that people were willing to say they preferred a beer that was flat than over carved. And I, I thought that was pretty heretical. I'm like, that's not Saison. No. Like, how was that even possible? How can you have such a dry beverage that is so thin and no lift to it? That's why it's dry is to have the, the CO2 have, you know, be able to be more lively. Yeah. The lively carbonation to me is a hallmark of Saison. Um, I think that there's this sense where people 
aren't informed about what you need to do to open a beer that's heavily carbonated and not have it foam because it's very accomplishable. And I, I've shown people sometimes when they come into the brewery, I will take a beer horizontal out of a stillage crate at like 65 degrees mm. and open it without spilling any of it. I'm like, this is, if you know what you're doing, this is completely accomplishable. And it's actually really pleasant to drink them at that uh, at that temperature, you can absolutely do it. Our, like the floodland carbonation levels vary a bit from beer to beer. I have backed them off of the carbonation levels I used early on at Holy Mountain, where some of those beers were very heavily carbonated. Um, I think that some of those beers that we did the really heavy carbonation on were beers that were just Brett beers. And with the mixed culture beers in general, I prefer a slightly lower level carbonation, although it, it sort of varies depending on the beer. But, you know, there's these elements to controlling carbonation, which are obviously one, you want to store the bottle vertically. When a, a beer is stored horizontally and the sediment forms on the side, the sediment is going to rouse as soon as you bring the bottle up, right? And so the number one thing that's going to cause foaming is the nucleation that happens when the CO2 in solution hits that sediment. So if the beer is stored for, you know, any sort of reasonable amount of time, even an hour is helpful, but a day is great. If it's stored vertically, then it's much, much less likely to foam. I think lots of people don't know that, first of all. A lot of people don't know the second most important thing about CO2 and liquids, which is that CO2 goes into a liquid at a linear rate based on the temperature. So when if you want to be a NASCAR dude spraying champagne, you should just open it warm because like a soda bottle, all that CO2 will come out of solution and will be in the headspace. And so essentially what happens is as soon as you release the cap, the CO2 tries to expand and in the process of doing that, it agitates all the liquid, which then causes it to nucleate, which then causes it to spray. So, you know, gesticulating with the beers and moving them around and dispersing the sediment in the bottle is going to cause foaming. So if you, if you have it stored vertically, and it's relatively cold. Cold is helpful, but it doesn't even absolutely need to be very cold. And then the key is just open it with like a paddle opener or something that's good. Open it quickly and immediately pour into a glass. Like unless if it's over carbonated, you're going to have a problem no matter what. But if it's highly carbonated, but properly carbonated. And, and honestly, we've never we've never at Floodland. I've never released a beer that um, I couldn't open with no foaming. Um so it's pretty, it's pretty easy, you know, but people I've seen so many people open bottles of beer, um, they open it and then they look around for a glass and yeah. I, I just, wince. Yeah. I'm like, I've trained myself over the years, you know, that's like, it's a, it's such a faux pas, you know, you have your glass next to your bottle and you can just in a smooth motion, you take the cap off and go immediately into the first glass. Um, once you sort of see that process and understand that process, opening Saison is high carbonation levels is really easy and it makes it so it's much more enjoyable, but, but th that you need to have a level of sophistication and knowledge in opening Saison is, is interesting and is maybe a barrier to entry for people enjoying the style. I mean, you can see it's like you open a bottle and it gushes in front of people. It's, it's a life skill. You know? It is a life skill. I, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, so just like, like I, you all the wine, right? Well, I've been drinking a lot more champagne over the years. And to open up champagne properly, I've been opening up beer bottles kind of, you know, more like that. I've, I've been thinking about my fill level to keep a little more headspace so that you can get the proper angle, open it so the little bubbles on the top of them, and then 
try to preserve all the CO2 inside the beer rather than opening yeah. it and it foams out um, so that you can enjoy it in the glass. I don't know, just like I said, it's life skills that you, you know, pick up from other things and you apply it to different other uh, or other avenues in life. Absolutely. I think this is one of a hundred reasons that Saison is fun, right? Like as a style, Saison, such a versatile style, so much fun. Opening lively bottles. Honestly, it just like, I kind of get like goosebumps even thinking about it. You know, like I want to go back to the days when you could get those old Fantome bottles where you just didn't know what was going to happen. It was so much fun. It was so lively. It was so exciting, right? Like there's just, there's a magic to it. Well, you know how they have like cloud art, people get into cloud art. I always thought of like, you know, when you open it and it foams and it just hangs out the bottles, like you see this little art forming on yeah. the <laughs> top of the bottle. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that TED talk on how to open a uh, floodlamp saison. I figured I so, had the platform I would take them <laughs> to do it. All right. So I think that does it for us. I think we went a tad long, but uh, thank you, Adam, for doing this. Um, you, were, uh, you came to mind uh, right away when I uh, knew I had to interview somebody. So I'm glad you were able to make the time for this. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Henry. It was good chatting. All right. So Adam will be back on the next episode of this show as the host having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. That will be on the air in two weeks. So make sure you tune in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. And to support journalism in the uh, beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Henry Wynn of Monkish Brewing. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Falling temps and festive seasons are fast approaching, which means now is a good time to develop holiday stouts and brown ales using hibiscus and cinnamon from First Tea. Looking for other new ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCode.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at MaltEurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order.